Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Josh Marshall podcast. You saw, you know, you saw the big stuff yesterday. We're recording as usual uh, a few minutes after twelve noon on Wednesday, April fifth. So yesterday was the big day. The you know slow speed chase, bron- white Bronco. I guess it wasn't actually a white Bronco, but I mean it was close enough, right? I almost, I almost thought that was like, that's like the first like righteous act this man has 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 done in his whole life, tossing in the single white the single white Bronco. I mean, I don't know. Like, I don't think that was, I don't think that was necessary. I don't think it's like, you know, Trump or Don Jr. just happened to have a white car and that's what they had to drive in or something like that. Any case, you know uh, that yesterday Donald Trump uh, flew up to New York, uh, or I guess he flew up the day before, uh, went downtown, surrendered uh, to authorities in in uh, the county of Manhattan. We've got a kind of funny setup here in New York City that a lot of people don't know about. The boroughs are actually counties. So Manhattan is a county. It's, it's part of New York City, but it's also a county at the same time. That's the sort of the administrative thing that that Trump was indicted under in uh, in, in in New York County. Uh, so that happened. You know, uh, you see him there sitting in the defendant's seat, uh, you know, uh, pleading not guilty, all that kind of stuff. Went out, went back to Mar-a-Lago, gave, you know, had a speech uh, last night, kind of going through the stuff. And you've probably seen, you know, one thing I want to mention, and I've mentioned this on the site, that there is a a real debate about the robustness of these charges, the robustness of the legal theory behind these charges. And when I say robust, I don't just mean that you know, Trump's people are saying it's bogus and everybody else are saying they're real, or even that sort of kind of both sides type commentators are saying this. Um, a number of people who who are legit are saying, you know, I, I really don't think the legal theory here uh, holds up or it's not that strong. It could get thrown out, something like that, blah, 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 blah. Um, a lot of other people saying, no, if you, if you, if you're familiar with the case law in New York State, in New York City, it's actually very strong. So that debate is happening. That's real. Uh, and I have a I have a post up about it on the site. Kind of, is is that okay? Is 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 that a problem that it may not be? Uh, you know, an an iron shut case on the law. I think it is fine, and I I don't want to go too much into. Um, too much into depth about that argument. Um, but I think it is fine. Um, and more broadly, and th- this is this 
is a related point. One of the reasons I think it's fine is that sometimes prosecutors make new law. Sometimes they come up with a, 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 a new legal theory and it holds up. And sometimes it doesn't. Is it, is it the end of the world if that normal process of law works out that way in this case? Yeah, no, it's fine. It's okay. That, that's, that's the judicial system. In a similar sense, you know, there was a, there was a New York Times analysis piece uh, out overnight that basically talked about how Donald Trump is managing to upstage Joe Biden. Joe Biden's kind of, you know, they're low energy talking about some policy thing, lowering the price of insulin, a lot of kind of, you know, normy stuff like that. And here you have, we're back to the Trump show. You know, you got the you got the cable networks. Uh, they're devoting the whole day to Trump. Trump is 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 calling the shots. It's you know everything is in relation to him. And this this Times piece is saying how you know what is Biden going to do about that? Trump is managing to upstage him. At a certain point, is Biden going to have to do something to kind of wrestle the country's attention back? Now. This is not a this is not a strong argument. When you are holding the country's attention because you're you're under arrest and you're being arraigned on multiple felony counts tied to hush bunny payments about this woman you had sex with one time and you're trying to prevent her from talking to reporters while you're trying to run an election, you you can hold you can you can dominate the news, but that's actually not good for you. And it's actually it's it's actually okay if 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 Biden doesn't get the most attention that day. And again, this is this is the same thing. People need a detox. Some people need to be in a 12-step program to get out of under living within Trump's drama. It is not a win getting arrested and 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 getting arraigned in court. That's not a win. And and there's something about Trump that gets people to think it is because he has this spell that he puts people under of, you know, heads I win, tails you lose. I'm winning even when I'm being crushed. You know, one only wishes that on the day that Trump's supporters were purportedly energized like never before to vindicate their guy and show their outrage at what happened. You wish there had been an election on a day like that, maybe in a red or purple state to kind of measure it. How mad are they, right? Well, we did have one of those elections. We had a big election in Wisconsin that had the state plastered with ads huge race. It's a Supreme Court race. Those races didn't used to be huge races, but now it's a huge race. Both parties spending money right and left. And the Republican was a diehard Trumper. Hardcore Trump guy. He got crushed. The, uh, the Democrat who's, who's, I'm not even going to try to pronounce her name because it's, I, it just, I'm not, but she crushed the Republican. His name is easy, Dan Kelly. 
It's basically 55-45. Now, that's not, you know, uh, 60-40, but Wisconsin's a purple state. It's basically a 50-50 state. Senate races are basically 50-50. Governor's races are basically 50-50. This was not a big win. And uh, I'm not going to say, you know, there's not that much more to say about it because we've talked about it a lot on the site and, and, and the coverage of it has been, um, the coverage of it really has been nonstop. But the one thing I want to just leave you with, just to, to, to share with you and ask you to consider is, again, let's not live within Trump's drama. There's a guy I really, really like, a uh, legal commentator, who's one of the people who thinks, you know, it, it, it's not a slam dunk case on the law. There are, you know, there, this case, everybody agrees that what Alvin Bragg did here was basically put together a series of legal prongs that allowed him to take various bad actions and kind of add it up to a full criminal conspiracy, a pattern of criminal conduct. Um, and this person thinks not simply that the case is is wobbly on the law. That's totally possible. I'm not a lawyer. I can't I can't get into the innards of the case like that. But more than that, more than that, and this is something in the political realm that I can speak to, that because there's a chance that the case may come apart, that it could be thrown out on appeal, that it could that it could be watered down through the through the you know through the trial process, that that will energize the people who oppose the rule of law itself. It could weaken confidence in the judicial system for the Trump people who are already saying the judicial system is a scam. Well, here's the thing: those people already think. The judicial system is the scam, is a scam. And they think that largely because they want to think that, because they do not buy in to the civic democracy and rule of law thing that a lot of us buy into. The judicial process is not a series of guaranteed outcomes, it's a series of agreed upon processes. And sometimes, Prosecutors bring cases that come apart. When they come apart, that's the rule of law too. That's, that's one of the possibilities. This is someone who has kind of serially committed crimes of different sorts through his whole life, but has been on a spree for the last seven years. He is the focus of multiple investigations he will probably be indicted by more than one of them. Some of them may not succeed. That's okay. The rule of law doesn't get weaker for following the law. We should have some confidence about that. We should also have some confidence, as I said before, that uh, Trump does not, every, does not win every time he tells us he's winning. That article I told you about in the New York Times, a lot of that is based on people not really fully absorbing the outcomes of the last two elections. Trump lost. He tells us all the time that he won, but he lost. And he lost by a pretty substantial margin. And based largely on him 
they did really poorly six months ago, too. And you have that election just yesterday. For most Americans, seeing someone indicted in a case like this, which is unquestionably criminal conduct in its substance, whether the particular jurisdiction has the ability to bring this case, that's, that's, that's a real question. But the criminal conduct is real. Trump's accomplice has already done time for it. Prosecuted by Trump's own Justice Department. Everybody should have a little more confidence about, uh, about the robustness and the solidity of our criminal justice system and our, and our, our civic democracy itself, even though it is under real threat. So a couple things I, a couple other things I want to mention to you. Uh, this week, we are not doing the video version of the podcast, and that's related to something else. Our Kate Riga is under the weather. She's got one of those terrible colds, and but she's a trooper, so she's here with us. But we're going to do it a little abbreviated today, just because, again, I mean, I'm, I'm not, this isn't like sneezing a few times. She, she's uh, getting over a really bad uh, cold. Um, and that's actually one of the reasons, you know, we're, we're kind of, we had a lot of positive feedback to the Instapod we did after the indictment. We probably would have done another one of those uh, last night, but, you know, uh, Kate was, I, I, you know, I, I don't know, like crawling around on the floor, so sick and stuff like that. But anyway, it was so bad. But the point is, uh, she's with us, real trooper. And uh, so just want to let you know, that's why we're going to, why we're going to go a little short today and why uh, we left it to me to kind of talk mainly about the Trump stuff. So that is the, that's the story for today's edition of the pod. Let me remind you before we, we, we bring in the, the sick person that uh, now is the perfect time. Speaking of being sick, now is the perfect time to stock your pantry for peak iced coffee season with Grady's New Orleans style cold brew. Grady's will ship a six pack of bean bag bundles right to your door so that you can enjoy refreshing cold brew coffee for a fraction of the price you'd pay at the coffee shop. The bean bags are the easiest way to brew it yourself. No special grinders, gears, strainers needed. For less than a buck a cup, it'll give you a smooth start to iced coffee season. Get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Okay, Kate Riga, I, I was trying to balance it there between, you know, capturing the 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 fullness of the situation while also like avoiding an, like a HIPAA violation. Right, everybody's really uptight these days, especially Trump people about like HIPAA. So I didn't want to, I didn't want to share too much. But we appreciate your being with us um, today. I mean, seriously, even even while she's like incapacitated, she's even filing stories and everything. But she really has been under the weather. So how you doing? Yeah. I'm okay. I appreciate you all um, bearing with me and my miserable stomach flu, uh, which I'm starting to get to that fine psychological point. That's like I will simply never be healthy again. And this is my life now. So, you know, spirits are high doing well. Um, yeah, it's just it's been not an optimal week to be sick because obviously yesterday was pretty jam packed with news. Um, my editor, John Light, very kindly monitored the Wisconsin election for me last night while I, you know, fell asleep at 7 p.m. I was there too. I was, you know, following that that uh, political analyst list I follow and getting mm. the getting the numbers. And it was interesting because, like, 
I would say there was maybe like the first half hour. There was, you know, you you have that early period where people are kind of seeing one county and the other. And at first, there's like a little, seems like she's doing well, but, you know, mm-hmm. kind of different things. And then pretty quickly, you start seeing people say like, wow, he's running behind in every single county in the state. It doesn't look like it's happening. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, just the proud tradition of Republicans running someone who got their ass whooped like recently, you know, continues to pay dividends for them. Our listeners will remember Dan Kelly lost essentially the same race to Jill Karofsky in 2020. He lost by a similar margin that he lost by last night. Um, You know, a lot of groups that were kind of democratically aligned paid money to boost him over the other conservative in the primary because they thought he was more vulnerable. Um, And this is one of those weird races where there's absolutely no public polling at all. So to some degree, you know, honestly, when we were going into last night, I felt very, very confident that the Democrat was going to win and win handily. But it's funny that that kind of a prediction in these kind of races is somewhat just based on like vibes, you know, because there's there's no public information. You have some reporting that private polling has her ahead, which you got to take with a grain of salt because there's never a name attached to that. Obviously, campaigns have their own reasons for wanting people to think they're ahead. Um And when you've got an election at the beginning of April, it's hard to be like, well, we know this is going to be a barn burner in terms of turnout because who knows? But she just like from... Can I ask ask you a question? Is the the one in 2020, Uh is that that the one, I guess maybe... Is is that the one where remember there was the there was the race in Wisconsin where you had like this the the, the speaker of the the Republican speaker of the state house you know they they kind of wouldn't let it let people do it remote so everybody had to go into the election at the you know precincts and everything in person and I remember this thing where he's saying everything is safe and he's there with like a hazmat headset <laughs> on and like and like gloves and everything was that that election oh or God. was that maybe the primary election that's so it was just funny one of these, because- it, it was. Like a real life version of the of the it you know everything's fine dog or something or what is it it's fine or whatever right that, whatever that thing is I mean, I'm sure some people remember it I can't remember if no that was, I remember it too and it course. could have been coupled with the presidential primary that would kind of make sense yeah if they did them at the same time I um, thought it was a little later than April because April was pretty this was in you know pretty early April 2020 um. So it might have been, we don't have to get, it It would, it, it'll probably be hard for us to kind of come up with the picture. Okay. To so figure yeah, out the, if it was the, that one. But Yeah, it's a primary. Um, right. So sometime around there. That's so the funny. I've completely forgotten about that. Yeah. Where he had like a, every, like every inch of skin, including gloves <laughs> on. And he's like, come on out, people. Yeah, it's great. Um, it's fine. That's so funny. Yeah. So, I mean, this race... The Democrat from the beginning was just like, this is about abortion, right? If you vote for the other guy, there are not going to be any abortion rights in the state. And that's essentially that. And then she, you know, she threw in some redistricting stuff and some he's an enemy of democracy stuff because, you know, he did try to help overthrow the election. And then he was doing the more kind of traditional tack of being like, hey, apolitical balls and strikes. I'm just an ump. And then, you know, dragging behind him a paper trail of anti-abortion stances, anti-LGBTQ stances and all the Trump stuff. Um So then she won, uh, like you said, very handily. We're at about an 11 point margin right now. And then he comes out last night to do his quote unquote concession speech. (laughs) And it starts 
the way you'd expect. You know, I couldn't be here without you. It's been the honor of a lifetime to get to know so many people across this great state, yada, yada, yada. And then he gets to, this didn't turn out the way we want. There's a couple of reasons why, and I think we should address them head on. And then he moves into, I wish I could concede to a worthy opponent, but I didn't have a worthy opponent. This was the most despicable, deceitful, deplorable race for the courts I've ever seen. I was slandered. She's a serial liar. She demeans the judiciary with her behavior. And then kind of closes with, you know, I respect the opinion of the Wisconsin voters. So best of luck. <laughs> you know, I don't think this is going to end well. You know, it's, it's funny as much as... um as much as the political impact of Dobbs has certainly not been met, you know, not been missed. Um, it's not the only reason that uh, Gretchen Whitmer has basically led Democrats back to dominating in Michigan, but it's certainly a big one. There's no question it's a big one. And you, you know, you, you, you just see, I mean, and, and there's also no question that it played a major factor um, in the 2020, 2022 midterm. I think it could have played an even bigger factor if, if Democrats had sort of, you know, uh, uh, fastened the outcome of the election to a specific outcome after the fact. But I think it largely turned out that voters didn't need Democrats to sort of connect the dots for them. They got it. The, the, the dots were already connected. And and this is, I mean, the way that it's certainly not the only way, but I think one of the big discussion points of this race nationally was, you know, close election in 2024. Um, you know, uh, Wisconsin Supreme Court is huge. Who controls the, you know, who controls the legislature is huge. And the Supreme Court may affect that. You know, all the kind of stuff for the national issues. Um, and those are huge. Those are really, really big. But as you say, it, w within the state and just generally, this was the thing. And, and just in the nature of things, it is, it is inherently hard to get people who are not politically infused, really, you know, jammed up about you got to do this because the Wisconsin state legislative maps are totally gerrymandered. Like what? <laughs> that's just not that's not that's not part of a lot of people's uh, lived experience unless you're really hardcore political. But when you go with we used to have fairly robust abortion rights access in this state, and now we don't, that gets people's attention. People know about that. And it's, you know, it's, it, everything, um, everything we have seen in the last year or so, I think really tells us what, what shouldn't be surprising that 2024 Dobbs and abortion are going to be huge issues. And I, and as much as yes, I'm certainly not the only one saying that, but I still think it is not seeped into the, you know, mainstream political dialogue as much as it, as much as it should for people really to get that. Yeah. It's interesting because I see so many pieces about this that's trying to say like the importance of Dobbs is ebbing, you know, it's, it's losing traction between or behind other issues and, and blah, blah, blah. And we've discussed this on the pod before in that 
you know, it's almost the redistricting piece is almost kind of even weightier when it comes to the political future of the state. But it's just such a salient, pithy, in this case, totally true message where if she had lost, abortion would have ended in Wisconsin, you know, and this is in Alabama. And even in like red states like Alabama, we know that a lot of people support abortion access, you know. Um, so, yeah, this was one that was hugely important. I mean, probably the most important election of the year, really. Unquestionably. And, unquestionably. Yeah. And wasn't even close. And again, yeah. Republicans are still, I think also a piece of this is like they're still hamstrung by this thing that we're seeing on all levels of government, which is it is just getting impossible to find a candidate that can win a Republican primary and is still palatable to a general election audience. And that's what happened here. You know, the primary Unless you're in a very red state. Unless you're in a very red state. The primary here picked the big lie supporting Uber Trump. You know, abortion is for sexual libertines guy. No wonder he couldn't compete in the general, right? And that's a problem that I don't know how they're going to get around because they have encouraged this dynamic throughout, I mean, at least the past few decades. Like while the base kind of marches to the right, there's no attempt to moderate. There's no attempt to widen the pool of people that the message appeals to. So instead, they kind of resort to methods that help a minority keep hold of power without requiring a majority of support. And like Kelly even kind of, I mean, a little bit did it. It it wasn't full-fledged big lie, but it was, I lost this election and I shouldn't have lost. And it's because my opponent lied and was deceitful and tricked the voters and now they're screwed. You know, I mean, that's not Trump filing lawsuits, but it's not exactly a, you know, I, I've lost, I can see it, I doff my cap to the next person. I hope they <laughs> they do their best to serve the people of Wisconsin. Yeah, I mean, most most candidates can, at least on election night, keep it gracious. Yeah. Lots of them don't stay gracious. And that's fine. You don't have to love the person. There's a reason you're running against them. But it is part of the sort of you know, it's it's it it's just striking what 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 Trump has done to us. It is it's it's so low on his list of offenses that we almost forget about it. But no time in modern history has the outgoing president just said, "Fuck it, I'm out of here," and just not shown up at the inauguration. I mean that that's like that's totally shocking. It's totally yeah. shocking, and he did it right. Um, and we kind of know in retrospect why he did it because. Doing that is bait. The reason it is important is that you say either I lost or I'm leaving office and that's the reality. So I am not celebrating maybe, but I am honoring the process. You can't really be there and kind of, you know, clapping at as the new guy gives a speech and then say, I was robbed. We need to overthrow the guy. You can't. They're 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 too uh, they're too dissonant. You know, a couple other just points to make about the political dynamics of abortion. I mean, one thing you can (laughs) one of the reasons that, you know, abortion is super damaging for Republicans now is that Trump told us. Trump told us after the 2022 election, their statements where he, he's out there basically saying, nice going, Supreme Court dudes. Good job. Good job on abortion. Great, great idea. He gets it. It's toxic for a general election, for a general electorate outside of really red states. 
And, you know, as we've seen, even in the very reddest states, abortion rights are usually only as bad as like 50-50. It would, you know, if you actually poll it. Now, in a very red state, that's not enough to change the policy, right? If the if the sort of the political class, political structure is invested in that policy, the public opposition to that policy has to be pretty overwhelming for it to make a difference. Um, but it shows you abortion rights are popular everywhere, right? And in, and in most of blue or purple America, they're overwhelmingly popular. And that is, uh, again, Trump told us. And on that point about, well, it's sort of, you know, it's sort of waning, it's becoming, it's becoming less salient. I think the key is people are, are confusing two different things. At a certain point, Dobbs happened, right? Dobbs happened. Abortion has been outlawed in a lot of the country. It is kind of hanging on by a thread in other parts of the country. But after a year, you've said it, right? So it can, at a, over time, the salience of it as a political discussion can diminish. But that doesn't mean the intensity as a political issue diminishes. I mean, again, after Dobbs happened, we're talking about that. We're talking about where it's going to get outlawed. We're talking about where it's going to shift elections. We're talking about whether women are going to be able to f go to other states, whether whether uh, abortion pills are going to be like all, you know, a million different things. But we've hashed out a lot of those issues. So as a as a as a discussion point that gets debated on CNN, yes, it's lost some salience, but that doesn't mean that people care about it less. It's just that there's less to debate politically about it. And I think what we see here in Wisconsin is when voters get a clear shot to address that issue, it goes badly for Republicans, right? Because like in a case like let, let's, let's take, you know, uh, Ron Johnson just won re-election by a pretty narrow margin six months ago. And, you know, that was a huge disappointment for Democrats, certainly for Wisconsin Democrats. But but in the nature of things, it's difficult for the Democrat to say, this is the abortion race. This is really about abortion. Because Ron Johnson getting reelected or not was probably not going to change abortion rights in Wisconsin or probably anywhere in the country. It's just one Senate seat is not going to do that, unfortunately. Um, and, and that has a big impact. And he went out of his way to, you know, uh, make that point, make that argument, even though it was disingenuous of him. He's like, hey, you can, you can go to Illinois. It's not that hard. It's not that big a deal. This isn't, you know, I mean, sure, it's murder, killing, killing a kid. But I mean, not like we're going to change it here in Wisconsin. I mean, come on, this has nothing to do with abortion. But in this case, everybody could see it really was a referendum on abortion. And the Republican got his ass kicked. Yep. And again, similar to what happened in Michigan. So let's talk about the other, uh, I think, more surprising kind of win for progressives last night, which was the Chicago mayoral race, uh, which had already kind of created some big news because in the first round of voting, um, Lori Lightfoot, the incumbent mayor, got, you know, pretty demolished, like 17%, not even enough percent of the vote to move on to the next round, which, you know, is the first time an incumbent mayor has lost since I think 89. So and a lot of people 
said, you know, tied to her that it was because during the pandemic in Chicago, there was this big spike in violent crime and it dominated the race and people blamed her for not being able to get it under control. And so crime kind of became the defining theme of the post runoff, you know, going to the final round, which was between Brandon Johnson, who's a progressive, a member of the teachers union, taught yeah, uh, you know, social studies for for a few years. And then you have this guy, Paul Vallis, who also has done a lot in schools. He's like kind of considered the emergency responder for school systems that are like just flailing, going underwater, but is also a big charter school guy. And his approach on the crime stuff, you know, he was endorsed by the Fraternal Order of Police. He was all, you know, we just need to kind of hire more cops, throw more police at the problem, while Johnson was more, um, this problem extends beyond the police, you know, we need to beef up mental health services and and, and that kind of thing. Um, and the race was super, super tight, basically till the end. But in an environment where crime was kind of the leading issue and the most talked about issue, the criminal reformer, the progressive one, Brandon Johnson won which Josh, you and I were talking about before we went on air, even though we have a couple examples of this now, you know, we have Philadelphia and Los Angeles. It's still almost like this was just baked in for so long that it's still almost kind of surprising that a progressive criminal reformer could win in an election where it's all about crime is exploding, how to crack down on crime. Yeah, I mean, I it's funny. My own, I am kind of equivocal on... Uh, I don't know how to describe myself on criminal justice issues. Um, I'm I'm generally on the progressive side, but I, you know, I'm I'm more equivocal about it certainly than many progressive Democrats are. Um, and I find myself, it certainly would not surprise me if in a period where two things are true, crime has gone up. Over the last few years, it's come down somewhat off the off the um, off the pandemic highs. It's very important to say those highs weren't very high compared. You know, if you think back to where we've come since like the early '90s and stuff that, but there was a a, a bump up during the pandemic. And I think beyond that, the pandemic was an episode of disequilibrium and disorder in our society. That is not the same as crime, but people often experience it as the same. It makes them more prone to law and order type politics. So when both those things are true, it wouldn't surprise me that criminal justice reformers would be losing races. But the reality is it doesn't really seem to be happening in, in, in big cities. We have Chicago. We had the case in Philadelphia where the, you know, the sort of the iconic um, uh, uh, reform prosecutor got reelected, you know, even after he he had become the the sort of the national lightning rod, allegedly about backlash to criminal justice reform. You had the mayor's race in Los Angeles. The New York mayor's race is often pointed to as the exception. Um uh, and a kind of, kind of, but not, I think, less than people think who don't live here. Just as an example, I think that um, 
and you know, the, the, the mayor here in, uh, in, in, in New York is, is, is controversial for a number of reasons. But if you look at how that race ran, there's a couple things to say. First of all, the fact that the mayor is African-American gave him some level of inoculation against being, uh, against the racial dynamics of that issue. The other part is that he came at the issue in the election in a way that, again, I think was somewhat under the radar of the national press. Yes, there was a kind of like, we need to get on top of crime, blah, 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 blah. He, st he started, he ran the race, he started with an ad that talked about the fact that he had been a victim of police misconduct as a teenager, as a black teenager. That is sending a very countervailing message. It's not a traditional, we're going to crack down, law and order, backlash. The other point is, and this is my read of that race, I think crime politics did play a role. But if you live here, I think more of the dynamic is um, African-American and other non-white populations, as well as white people around my age, from the outer boroughs, outside of Manhattan, versus candidates who read as Manhattan liberals. That was really the dynamic. Are the sort of the, the PC Manhattan liberals going to govern the city? Or are folks like Eric Adams, you know, middle class, somewhat more conservative, African-Americans, again, more like my age, are their values going to govern the city? Does that correlate to some degree with crime issues? Yeah, but there's a lot else involved there. So in any case, it's, it's, it is interesting to me because, again, in a period where, where, where there are a lot of feelings of public disorder tied to kind of social disequilibrium around the pandemic, and the fact that Certainly, some kinds of crimes, especially you know theft and 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 uh, uh, various kinds of larceny and theft, are have been up a lot during the pandemic. I would think that that the the judicial ref the criminal justice reform pitch would be a harder sell. But again, we keep seeing it not being the case. And I'm not saying even whether that's good or bad. It's just not the case objectively. I mean, L.A., Chicago, Philadelphia. As I've said, I don't think New York is even a terribly good example of it. It's like again and again. It, it, just, it just doesn't play that way. Yeah, I mean, and it's interesting because these are the kind of data points I think you need to add up to start changing how Democrats respond to this stuff. Um, you know, most recently we were talking about the whole Biden D.C. crime bill debacle. Um and how that was such kind of classic Democrats letting Republicans frame up the issue, letting them kind of, in this case, really contort what this bill did to make it sound horrible. Um, and then just fearfully scuttling back into place, you know, so as not to have soft on crime hung around their necks. But then we also talked about how they're, you know, alongside these mayoral races, you've got, you know, Fetterman as a really prominent example of someone who talked about crime differently. And I think as we have these wins stack up, that's going to bleed more and more into the party platform. Um, and I think eventually kind of uh, loosen the entrenchment of these old school Democrats in this position that's you know, Republicans are the only ones who know how to win on crime. So we're just kind of going to be a pale imitation of how Republicans respond to this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, 
I am, I am more, I'm more uncertain, I think, about the politics of it. Because I think, I think the real dynamic is this. Let's think about Philadelphia as one of these kind of like iconic cases um, with the DA, the reform DA in, in, in Philadelphia. I think the real key is that the, by, by definition, we can see the people in Philadelphia are pretty good with the reform project. The people in central Pennsylvania, though, are really not happy about how things are going on in Philadelphia. And that sounds kind of funny because sort of like who's the who's who's best, you know, who's the electorate in Philadelphia? But that's really the dynamic of what is happening on this issue that the the politics of criminal justice reform have not changed that much in urban America. Less than I would have thought they would have changed, but Democrats also fear they have to run in suburban and rural areas where it, it is, I'm not sure whether it's changed a lot, but it's very different. And you have this kind of, uh, you know, sounds funny kind of paradox of, uh, you know, why do we in New York or why do you in LA need to worry about, you know, what, what the folks in rural Ohio think about criminal justice reform? Well, parties have to run everywhere with the same reputation. And I, I, th I think that's kind of, you know, th that is kind of, uh, you know, that's kind of what that's about. Um, and it, it you know, I, 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 I will say this, there is something that has happened is that there were a number of, there have been a number of elections in urban America where basically things that really were something like you know defund the police abolish police really were rejected by voters i think you have the the um you know one example is 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 minneapolis minneapolis is where george george floyd was murdered um the epicenter of everything that happened in the summer of of 2020 uh with the protests around the country that was a big iconic moment because the young mayor of minneapolis refused during one of the big protests to agree with the protesters basically that the police department should be defunded or radically scaled back and there was you know video that lots of people saw where he re he refused to assent to this in a kind of a you know colloquy colloquy with the protesters and then he had to kind of you know walk back through this gauntlet of protesters booing him and again it was seen as this very iconic moment he has late, he has been vindicated by the voters of the city but that was an example of you know he, he wasn't a get tough on crime person he was simply saying that that the city should continue to have a police department, and none of these people who were seeing as uh, you know advocates of criminal justice reform, whether it's in Los Angeles or Philadelphia or Chicago or New York, none of these people are really talking about defunding the police or not having a police department. That's not a real thing in these elections. Um, but it, it's worth saying that there certainly were. Uh, demands during that summer and continuing that are not popular. People do not, people want to have police departments, even people who are extremely critical of the police. Um, but again, just 
broad strokes, the idea that uh, people are people in urban America have lost patience with criminal justice reform and a different way of dealing with policing. Again, the evidence is 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 kind of not there in multiple big cities around the country. And again, I'll say this. It comes as a bit of a surprise to me, but that's just the reality. There's, there's, you know, the, the evidence is there. There's no, there's no denying it. Before we wrap, um, I want to toss in one little extra nugget that we didn't plan for, but I kind of forgot until we started recording that we have this weird thing happening in North Carolina that I think we should just touch on briefly because it's so bizarre. Yeah. You've got this woman her name is Trisha Cotham. Uh, and she comes from like a double digit Biden district, you know, super like blue. 6535, basically. Yeah. yeah. And then we just found out in the last couple days, and then I think she announced it formally today, that she's switching parties, that she's joining the Republican Party, thereby giving Republicans a super majority and veto override power of Roy Cooper, the Democratic governor there. And it's bizarre. I mean, there is no like she wasn't even one of those kind of, you know, blue dog Democrats. She was pretty outspoken about abortion rights. Um, It's just hard to look at this story and not immediately wonder, like, is there some money going on in here or something? Because this is just not something you see people do. A, months after they were newly elected in a strongly blue district, thereby ending her political career and seemingly not because she is more ideologically aligned with the Republicans, just out of nowhere. You know, I kept seeing people in comments comparing it to Kirsten Cinema, but this makes way less sense than Kirsten Cinema. I mean, Kirsten Cinema has like deeply far right values. This woman doesn't seem to. Yeah, it's really people switch parties for two reasons, basically. One is that they are very ideologically close to the other party in the first place, and things are moving in some direction. And, you know, think if if uh, Joe Manchin decided to become a Republican, you'd say, well, okay, that sucks. But like, you know, he's he was pretty conservative to start with, sort of surprised he was a Democrat. I mean, there's reasons why I'm not surprised Manchin is a Democrat, but certainly people would would think of it that way. The other reason is kind of like you're in a district that you just that that is very marginal and you think that's the way for you to stay in office. And both of the, you know, both of those are 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 reasons, but in this case, you have someone who has presented themselves as a down the line blue democrat. You know, they're democrat. They're pro-abortion rights. They're this on, you know, all the different issues. And it's an overwhelmingly democratic district. So this is completely at odds with her political ideological presentation of herself. And it ends her political career. So like, what, I mean, politicians are frequently slimy, but they seldom slit their own throats politically. That makes no sense. And I have heard some people say, well, they're going to create a really red district for her. So she's going she's gonna to just win easily as a Republican. Well, or, or kind of like, well, they'll make it a kind of a slightly Republican. So she'll win it. The reality is political turncoats 
almost always lose. Except in cases where someone like someone like Dick Shelby was a good example. He was a someone who just barely made it in as a Democrat like 30 years ago in the Senate, but his state was already pretty red and trending red. So he's already popular in the state, becomes a Republican, everybody agrees on it, and he's good to go. This is not this is not the same. This is this is a a a a a Biden a Biden uh, district. If she's a Republican now and they want to put her in a very red district, you know what's going to happen? The Democrats are going to be totally united to destroy her, and Republicans are going to think we wanted a QAnon person. Why do we have this Democrat who's pretending to be a Republican? And it's not just the voters. You've got a lot of Republicans who want seats. So you're going to have the QAnon person who like primaries her. And, and so like maybe, like maybe that was the pitch. We'll take care of you as a Republican. But history says that's a hard, that, that's a, that, that doesn't really work. So, uh, you know, I, I don't want to speculate, but like if you're thinking something must be amiss here, I think you're on the right trail because why? I mean, you know, even um, even if you uh, <laughs> even the cinema argument is slightly better than what this woman's argument seems to be in a in a in a in a in a body where it's you know fifty one to forty nine or you know fifty fifty or fifty fifty one as the weird dynamics of the Senate have it. You can sort of say. I'm going to kind of keep my options open because we all need to, you know, we're not going to do party line votes. We all need to come together. Well, we've seen that that's not really a terribly strong argument for cinema, but there's really no argument like of we've got to, we've got to come together. And that's why I want to make a super majority for my non-party so the supermajority of my non-party can steamroll the governor. Like, <laughs> there's no argument for that. In a state where the legislature is Republican, the state Supreme Court is super Republican, and the governor is the only Democratic backstop in the whole state government. Yeah, it's just, and, and I think not that this, not that it matters directly, but I think she's also a political legacy. Mm, I, I think her mom was a big a Democratic player in the state. Um, and again, when I first heard about it, I assumed this was one of those kind of, you know, conservative Democrats holding on from the old days, you know, someone who would be a Republican in most of the country, maybe is some sort of marginal district and they're figuring, ah, winds are blowing for the Republicans, I'm just going to switch over. But no, it's not. There's something up here. It just does not, it, 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 it doesn't compute. That's all I have to say about it. Yep. That's so bizarre. And now you have um, the state level Democrat saying, you know, calling for her resignation. Um, and, you know, I'm sure she won't because she was willing to pull yeah. a move like this. But yeah, I mean, in for a dime, in for a dollar. Right. But pretty hard to argue that this isn't like as big a betrayal of your voters as you can possibly pull. Yeah. And and again, at least, you know, at least Kirsten Cinema telegraphed for a few years that this is where she was going, right? I mean, even in her first two years in the Senate, she was moving somewhat in this direction um, for a year and a half before she switched parties, or I guess what? Uh, yeah, about a year and a half, year or so, something like that. She's 
you know, it's not out of the blue. But I mean, this is sort of like um, this is sort of like if tomorrow or, you know, during the previous during in the previous Senate when it was 50 50, if Brian Schatz got up one day and said, you know what, I'm becoming a Republican and uh, I'm clearly never going to be elected in Hawaii again. But I I talked to Mitch and I just feel like this is the thing for me to do. And you say, what? Wait, what are you talking about? Like, you're just going to like. You're a down-the-line Democrat. You're from a Democratic state. You are never going to be elected again, but you just kind of woke up one day and you decided to become a Republican. I'm not trying to beat up on, on Brian Schatz. I think he's one of, the, one of the best guys in the Senate, but you'd say like, dude, Brian, tell us. What's up, dude? Because this makes no sense. And this is like the North Carolina version of that. Exactly. There's no other way to put it. Yeah. So we'll be keeping our eye on that because yeah. bizarre. Speaking of which, all right, we have to we have to return Kate to her sick bed. We've gone a little longer than than we were going to. We got to an hour, uh, but uh, want to you know we are. Let me let me let me. There's something else I was going to mention. I want to thank everybody who has already signed up to become a TPM member during our annual membership drive, which kicked off on Monday. This is really really important. I was explaining to someone. A uh, friend of mine, uh, how because uh, because they were they were asking like how's TPM doing, and I said, well, it's kind of complicated. And I explained to this person, I said, probably two thirds to three quarters of what used to be our competitors over the last five years or so have gone under. They don't exist as publications anymore, or they folded into other publications, and the big corporate. Uh, uh, corporate back publications that exist, and they're protected because usually the corporation has reasons why they need to kind of keep in the space, even if the company isn't isn't making money, right? So if you're owned by you know NBC Universal or one of the big operations, uh, you know you you have some protection. They all they've all every every six months they announce they announce more layoffs. We're still here. And the reason we're still here is because of our members. And it's not easy. It is, it is the, 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 all of us here at TPM, but the folks who, who, who manage the P&L and manage the business side of it, it is, it is challenging. It is really challenging. And I say all that to say, it's important. We need you to become a member. And so my particular ask is, some of you, a lot of you who listen to the Josh Marshall podcast are members, are TPM members, probably the majority of you, but many are not. And maybe you only listen to the podcast and the podcast is free. So that's totally cool. But I will ask you, if you enjoy the podcast, consider joining TPM. Consider subscribing consider becoming a member, even though you don't have to, to, to listen to the podcast, because TPM is the company who, who makes this possible. And literally, almost 90% of our revenues come from subscriber fees. So we entirely depend on you. So if you're not a member, consider joining, consider joining today. It helps us a great deal. And I'll tell you this, it will help because the less anxiety I feel as the person who's fun, you know, at the end of the day, responsible for making sure everybody's salaries gets paid, the less anxiety I feel, the, the, the higher quality I'm able to bring to the podcast, the more brilliance, the more wit, 
the more funny jokes and stuff like that. So it actually pays off even to you. So consider uh, subscribing. It's not much, but the, you know, each month it's about the cost of like a fancy coffee or something like that. And if you're interested, go to talkingpointsmemo.com. Uh, this month we've got it plastered with with annual membership drive, little little icons and stuff like that. So it's easy to see how to sign up. So please consider it. And for for everybody who is a member, you are awesome. We would the fact that we are here still going strong while while the whole industry, the whole digital news uh, publishing industry is is in a shambles is because of you. Because while everything else was going wrong for everybody else, we have this really strong uh, membership base that keeps us uh, thriving. So that is my very long winded pitch for why uh, you should you should subscribe to TPM because this is this month is our annual membership drive anything to add that, that was, was it was kind of extempore but i mean that wasn't bad right i kind yeah, of got very the basics good. thank you thank you so yeah. much well we are going to send kate uh uh back to the back to her sick bed and um you know and you're well i won't even go into more stuff like that but anyway that is all for this week we're going to have a hopefully a completely on the men Kate back uh, next week. And if some mega news drops, maybe we'll even do another Instapod like we did on uh, on Thursday. So I guess that's it. That's all we all got right. for this week. Sounds good. Talk soon. Later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song. And thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen.